Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's finally here, election day. We know it's been hard to tear yourself away from the presidential race this year. Today, where we live, we're checking in on those local races and regional issues before voters. Coming up, we'll be joined by Capitol reporters Mark Pasniokas of ctmirror.org and Christine Stewart from ctnewsjunkie.com to tell us what's at stake in the Connecticut General Assembly. Polls opened at 6 a.m. Have you voted already? Tell us how it went at your polling site, the number 860-275-7266. You can email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. First, Massachusetts is one of five states that has this ballot question before voters today. Should recreational use and the sale of marijuana be legalized? And if Bay State voters approve it, what will this mean for Connecticut? To tell us more, we're joined in studio by WMPR's John Dankosky. He's host of weekly show Next here on WMPR. NPR, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative. Always good to see you. Good to see you, Lucy. And I think we should say hello to our viewers on Facebook Live. If you go to WNPR's Facebook page, you can watch all day long as the news team checks in at polling stations, talks to voters, visits the Colin McEnroe show later, and I think they're going to crash some election night parties. Yeah, I think they're going to be doing this all day long. They started their morning with me out in my hometown of Winston. They drove all the way out there to see how things were going at the polls. I will say it was a steady stream of people, Lucy, not a long line but uh, consistently people coming into Pearson Middle School to vote. Not the type of activity in terms of partisan support one way or the other out in front that we usually see. I think in part because people are gearing up for a long day and because it was pretty cold. It was a little bit below freezing this morning, but things went well out in Winstead. I I will tell you that all throughout the day, too, something that I'm going to be doing is updating you on election land. And election land is a project that uh, we're taking part in with ProPublica and hundreds of other news organizations around the country where we're going to be monitoring what's happening at the polls. And that's everything from any signs of voter intimidation to signs you see of voter fraud to signs you see of long, long lines or something untoward happening at the polls. Not that that's ever happened in Connecticut before, but every once in a while we'll see some uh, something that we want to report. And then hopefully other reporters will be able to help run down some of the answers for us as well. So if you're on Twitter, follow at Electionland. There's a lot of really interesting stuff about what's happening at national polls today. That's good to know. And I know we've been hearing from a lot of our listeners on our Facebook and Twitter uh, pages. So again, you can uh, tweet at where we live or at WNPR. Let us know how it's going um, as you're voting this morning. You can also call in 860-275-7266. So John, uh, fill us in on this ballot question. Massachusetts, uh, Maine, some other states looking to ask voters, should marijuana be legalized? Yeah, it's really one of the big issues uh, happening right now across the country. And most importantly for residents of Connecticut, it's taking place in Massachusetts today. There's been a lot of money spent on this question about whether or not to to legalize the recreational use of marijuana. Of course, across New England, uh, already quite a bit of decriminalization of marijuana, already um, uh, widespread use of marijuana for medicinal purposes. So many people see this as the next step uh, in this ballot question, uh, like alcohol, marijuana would be legal for adults 21 years of age or older. Unlike alcohol, though, there would be limits on how much you could have with you at any given time. 
uh, and we won't get into all the specifics there. But the other part of this, Lucy, that I think is important is that the towns and cities across Massachusetts would be able to, to vote about a local ban. So even if the outcome of this statewide poll, this referendum in Massachusetts, says, yes, we're going to legalize uh, weed, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to come to your town. There's been a lot of speculation about what it's going to mean to border towns next to Connecticut or Rhode Island, but it's not necessarily reflexive that just because you can uh, you can buy and sell uh, marijuana all across Massachusetts that you would have it in a town right on the border like Longmeadow, Mass. Now, we know in Connecticut we've had um, legislative hearings about this issue, but it hasn't gotten to where Massachusetts is. How did they get to this point? Well, it's a ballot question in part because, like we've seen in other states, it's a really hard thing for legislators to say, look, I want to support the legalization of marijuana. In the Northeast, it's been especially difficult, I think, because we've been in the grips, as you've reported and we've reported across the region, of this opioid epidemic. And while there are certainly advocates who say that the legal availability of marijuana might provide an option for pain relief for people who need it so that they don't need to use opioids, Many others see it as the possible gateway toward drug use and abuse. And more than anything else, science put aside, many lawmakers are very concerned about saying, I'm going to vote for making any drug legal while they're seeing their you know, sons and daughters and fathers and mothers dying at a fairly horrific level because of opioid abuse and overdose. So that's why it's on a ballot question. I know that Connecticut has talked about it and about whether or not it's going to come back legislatively. I know other states have as well. We're going to see if there's any impact on Connecticut if, indeed, Massachusetts passes this today. And we know that Maine also has this ballot question before them. It's a very similar ballot question up in the state of Maine. Of course, if that ballot question were to pass, and from what we've seen, it seems at least possible, likely, that uh, Massachusetts and Maine would both pass these ballot questions. Then there would be a big question for the other remaining New England states, whether or not it would make sense to then go ahead and legalize. Of course, uh, on either side, there are advocates. There's a lot of money flowing into uh, the race in both places. In in Maine, uh, Governor Paul LePage, who's quite outspoken about drug use in his uh, community, uh, he and top law enforcement officials say it would increase youth access to the drug and bring big marijuana businesses from out of states to Maine, which has been a concern. Now, you're uh, executive editor of the New England News Collaborative. You're working with a lot of reporters around New England. Um, what have they been hearing in their stories about why there's such a push to legalize marijuana here? Well, let's actually listen to uh, Jim Borgasani. He's uh, communications director for the campaign Yes on 4. He was speaking during debate on the issue, which was hosted by one of our member stations, WBUR, and also the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the Boston Globe. He gives a little insight as to why Yes on question 4. Well, we need full legalization because prohibition has failed. It has failed to keep marijuana out of our community. It has failed to keep marijuana out of the hands of our young people. And it has cost law enforcement and society millions and millions of dollars to enforce. We need to end prohibition and replace it with a taxed and regulated system and finally control marijuana in Massachusetts. I think one of the big uh arguments that he's making and a lot of people who are pushing for legalization in Massachusetts are making is that disproportionately low-level drug crimes like possession or sale of marijuana, they fall on uh, a segment of society that has an awful lot of the criminal justice system essentially fall on their shoulders. Uh, these are, are young people of color. And so 
in in his mind and in a lot of people's minds, this actually helps to set things a little bit more clear. Uh, it would, in in their mind as well, undercut a fairly robust black market. Um, of course, there's a lot of people on the other side of the issue who say that, well, the science doesn't necessarily back that up, and they're worried from a law enforcement perspective, too. And what lessons have they learned from Colorado about how they should be rolling out if they wanted to legalize uh, marijuana? Well, you know, there's a couple different questions I want to get to. One has to do with that question of whether or not there's going to be more illegal activity, almost cartel-like activity. But first, let, let's listen to the other side of that debate from WBUR Boston. This is a Massachusetts state senator who's working on the no side of the ballot question for his name is Jason Lewis. What this ballot question is really about is not about whether an adult can use marijuana in their own home. No one's bothering them today. What this is really about is commercializing big marijuana in Massachusetts. This ballot question is written by and for the marijuana industry, and unfortunately it puts their profits ahead of the health and safety of our children and our communities. So uh, one of the big arguments there is that there's money coming from the outside. People want to invest in a new legal marijuana economy in Massachusetts, and they have concerns, as well as some other states, about whether or not it's going to increase illegal activity. I, I, I want you to listen, Lucy, if, you, if we would, to a clip from Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy. Now, she's come out against this question. Here she is speaking to one of our reporters from Maine Public Radio. His name is Fred Bever, and she was talking about some of the problems that she's worried about in Massachusetts, Maine, and neighboring states. What is going to stop a drug cartel from purchasing property, renting property here, and running an operation out of that property. And that's something that could be situated next to a school, next to a hospital, in a suburban neighborhood. That's a real problem. And I I think that what she's looking at is some of the experiences of a state like Colorado, where you've actually had activity that has moved legal marijuana outside of that state to other states where people are charging quite a premium for it. And so that's a concern she has, especially with all these states uh, so closely linked to one another. Might we have a cartel-like activity moving uh, product out of Massachusetts or Maine to other states? I understand this ballot question, not just asking um, Massachusetts voters to decide if if it should be legalized, but also part of it, besides uh, who can buy it and who can sell it, also the growth of these plants in people's homes. So there would be a worry that where would that be going? Would people be smuggling that out? Yeah, and if you if you read the the question, there's some somewhat vague language about how many plants you could grow at home and whether or not you could grow them uh, in the open. And I think that those are all the sorts of questions that that people have. I, I will say, as you heard the gentleman, uh, the Massachusetts uh, state representative, talking about uh, the no side of this issue, people don't really get bothered in the state of Massachusetts if they're consuming uh, this product at home. It's just a question of whether or not it's going to be out in the open. The other thing that's really fascinating about this is often people argue, and, and you know, Lucy, hosting Where We Live, I've gotten calls for years, people saying, well, why don't you, why don't you tax it and you can raise money? I mean, the state needs the money. Well, one of the arguments uh, against the Massachusetts ballot question is they've uh, let the excise tax be so very low for this proposal at at around an effective 12 percent that many people are worried that it's not going to achieve anywhere near the type of budget windfall for the state of Massachusetts that you would have if you had a higher excise tax, uh, much higher. Uh, Colorado's is about double that. And so people are worried that they're not going to raise anywhere near the money that is necessary 
proponents of that low excise tax say, hey, look, we got to compete with the black market here. If we make it too expensive, then people are still going to buy their marijuana someplace else. Because that tax is so low, is it would it be too late for Connecticut to get in on this if after if Massachusetts were to legalize? Well, of course, Connecticut can get into it at any time. I guess the question is, does the Connecticut state legislature uh, really have the stomach to take on this issue, as I say, in the midst of an opioid epidemic, or would they want to uh, try to move forward with a type of ballot question, something that's really, really complicated in the state of Connecticut to get something like that done? That really remains to be seen. But as we see, there's a lot of cross-border competition, whether it's for casinos or for jobs or for corporate headquarters or for tax rates. And so if we see Massachusetts and Maine going legal, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Connecticut uh, and Rhode Island follow suit pretty quickly. We've heard from some officials in these states. What about uh, public opinion? On Is this likely to pass? From what I understand, public opinion in Massachusetts shows that it is very, very likely to pass. Of course, You've got a lot of public officials uh, in Massachusetts who have come out against this. That doesn't necessarily hold a whole lot of sway. Of course, you've got an awful lot of uh, young voters in colleges who are voting in in Boston, and they are very much uh, behind yes on this question. Uh, another main public radio reporter, though, did some interesting work on college campuses and just reminded people that just because it might be legal in Maine doesn't mean it's going to be necessarily legal on your campus. Uh, just like the referendums that you'll be able to have in your local towns about whether or not you want to uh, actually have a place that sells pot in your community after it's legalized statewide, there's going to be an awful lot of places where it will still be widely prohibited. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to change life on college campuses all that much. That said, college students, for the most part, are are for this uh, ballot question. And before we let you go, John, I understand there's some other ballot questions before Massachusetts voters, one involving chickens. Yeah, you know, this is actually really interesting. There's been a lot of states that have worked on uh, animal welfare issues over the course of the last couple of years, but none has really gone in, in, at least in the eastern part of the country, into the question of cage-free eggs quite the way that this ballot question in Massachusetts would. Essentially, it would make shell eggs— whole eggs that are grown in a non-cage-free environment illegal. You wouldn't be able to sell eggs that weren't cage-free. It doesn't mean you can't sell eggs that come in cartons. It's a whole different question. You know, big hotel chains get their eggs in bulk. But if this prohibition happens, it would essentially mean that an awful lot of the eggs that get shipped in from outside the state from big Midwestern growers you wouldn't be able to buy in Massachusetts. A lot of people uh, who oppose this measure say it's going to drive up the price of eggs substantially. And a lot of analysis says, yes, it will drive up the price of eggs substantially. Others say, well, it's an animal welfare issue, and it's something that we probably should have done a long time ago. I want to thank John Dankoski. He'll be back on the air later today, I understand, on the Colin McEnroe Show. Yeah, so I, I'm going to be going in throughout the course of the day. I, I don't know if I'm going to be stopping on, on Colin's show, but I will be stopping in with Colin in the afternoon on Facebook Live. I'm going to be on Radio Boston at 3 o'clock on WBUR. I'm going to be on Vermont Public Radio tonight. And you can follow all day long on Election Land, too. There's a lot of good stuff happening. So you can find out about what's going on at the polls across America today. Thank you, John. Thank you, Lucy. John's executive editor of the New England News Collaborative. You can hear his show next Thursday. Thursdays at 2. Coming up, we're going to hear about the other races on your ballot today. That's the Connecticut General Assembly. Also, tell us how your voting went. Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Connecticut General Assembly has been controlled by Democrats for some time. That could change after today's election. To tell us more, we're joined in studio by Mark Pazniokas. He's Capitol Bureau Chief at ctmirror.org. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us, I know a lot of us have been paying attention to the presidential race, but in our local towns, we've got some choices to make. There's the fight for control of the General Assembly, which, you know, the locals like to say is as important, if not more important, as far as the direct impact on people's lives. So it would be very unusual for the Republicans to pick up sufficient seats uh, to actually seize control. They need 12 seats in the House. Uh, They need four in the Senate. Uh, but the the terrain favors them this year. There's a lot of anger uh, expressed at the General Assembly over taxes, over the economic climate, uh, over Democratic Governor Daniel Malloy, who, even though he's not on the ballot, has been a major player in these races. The Republicans are linking their opponents to the governor at every possible opportunity just as the Democrats are linking their opponents to Donald Trump where they get the chance. You've been covering the Capitol for some time. When is the last time the Republicans have been in control of either the House or Senate? The Republicans have not captured both chambers since uh, the Reagan landslide of 1984. And uh, back then they had the party lever. So you could go in and and click one one lever on the old mechanical machines and in 1984, many people did. And <laughs> it was a huge uh, turnover. Since then, um, the House is uh, – it was a short-lived Republican reign. It was two years. Uh, the Democrats have held the House ever since. Uh, the Republicans had one other two-year period where they uh, were helped by the election of Governor John Rowland in 94. And they had a two-year term in control of the state Senate by a narrow 19 to 17 margin. Tell us about some of those specific races, and then we're going to get to some calls. Sure. Uh, You have 20 open house seats, and that's when there is the greatest opportunity to have things change hands. Um, In Connecticut, as is the case in Congress, incumbency is a huge advantage most times. Um, So the races in the Senate, the focus is on four or five districts where they, these are all Democratic districts and the Republicans would really need to uh, you know, run, almost run the table, take four out of, out of those five. There are three Republican districts where the Democrats think they might flip it. So you could sort of have offsetting gains. But the, um, a lot of the attention has been in Meriden where you have an unusual situation. The Democratic Senator Dante Bartolomeo is in her third match against the Republican Len Suzio. You don't see that very often, although there's actually a a case like that out in Manchester in a House race. A guy named Mark Tweedy, the Republican incumbent, uh, is facing a Democrat named Joe Domenico. Joe had the seat two years ago. Tweedy beat him, and now he's trying to take it back. So you have these little local uh, dramas But the unifying themes really have been taxes, have been the business climate, uh, a lot of voter anger uh, at the state level as well as nationally. And again, the, the, the Republicans are trying to channel that into votes at the local level. I want to uh, bring into the conversation Christine Stewart. She's editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. Christine, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks, Lucy. So tell us, have you voted yet? What have you been observing out there? 
Yes. No, I, I voted at around 820 at my polling place in Windsor. Um, there were 800 more voters registered at my polling place um, this year than there were in 2008. Um, so, you know, voting has been brisk early on today. Um, I was also in Hartford earlier at the Hartford Seminary, um, where Secretary of the State Denise Merrill cast her vote and Governor Malloy cast his vote. Um, so they have been um, they have been busy. Um, all, all day today, and I think uh, turnout is going to be probably, um, with the record number of registered voters, probably higher than a- anticipated. So um, Secretary Merrill actually said something interesting. She was like, you know, m- maybe this summer we thought, you know, people were going to be, they were just so fed up with the election and they were so frustrated um, that they were actually going to stay home and not vote. And in the past week, um, that seems to have changed. Well, I guess that's a good sign if, if turnout is brisk and people are coming out to vote. Yes, definitely. I I mean, a good sign for for participation in the process. Christine, you also cover the Capitol. What are some races where we might see some uh, interesting upsets? Yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting, as as Mark did the the rundown. I mean, there's 22 um, open house seats and there's... um, Oh, um, there were two senators in the Senate who didn't run for re-election, one Democrat, one one Republican. Um, The Senate seems to be the best chance for Republicans to make gains. Um, But I think that there's probably there's going to be probably some Republican gains in the House, too. And, you know, what what does this mean for policy going forward if Republicans do make gains in either chamber, even if they don't take over um, either chamber, which is highly unlikely in this situation with the House. But um, it means that there's going to have to be more bipartisanship. Uh, and there's going to have to be uh, more cooperation and conversation um, around the big public policy issues. Um, Mark, Christine mentioned bipartisanship. That almost seems like a foreign uh, concept at the Capitol. Well, it happens more in Hartford than it does in Washington, to be sure. Um, but one of the changes um, will be you're going to see a, a very small group of Democrats in the Senate. There are, there are two or three fiscal conservatives uh, Paul Doyle, Joan Hartley, Gail Slosberg, and their influence will grow as the size of the Democratic majority shrinks. Um, they, they'll they get to shape the budget. That's sort of the natural kind of push and pull at the Capitol. Um, as the numbers get tighter, you know, every, every man a king, every woman a queen, um, and particularly when it comes to – influencing getting the final passage of the budget. So that's going to be a very different this year. And Next year, I should say. <laughs> well, I was going to, even the even the moderate uh, Democrats in the House, uh, there were, I, I don't know, at last count, there were maybe 14 of them will, will probably wield a little bit more power this year, too. And But there, there may be fewer of them today, because one of the odd things about you know, politics, it's the moderates, it's the people in the middle who tend to get squeezed sometimes by these elections. But but Christine's basic point is right. You're going to see the dynamic in the House as well. And Christine, you mentioned that uh, Secretary of the State Denise Merrill is saying that, you know, turnout is going to be higher than expected. Uh, when you say that, what are we talking percent, percent percentage uh, wise? OK, so in 2008, um, turnout, voter turnout across the state was 78 percent. Uh, in 2012, it was a little lower at 74 percent. Um, you know, so so estimates could go anywhere between, you know, 70 and 75 percent, you know, maybe higher. Maybe it will be higher than 2008 since more voters are registered. So that would be greater than 78 percent. I want to take a call. Christine, stay with us. Art's been holding from Norwich. Art, you're on where we live. Hello. Um, I voted around 8 o'clock this morning, and um, I noticed 
two things. Um, first, there, there was no people holding political signs. They were all in the ground, which is unusual to me. And then um, the, one of the poll workers says that 586 people had already voted, and she marveled at that. Wow. And um, were you a voter that um, was paying attention to more than just the top of the ticket? Yes, I was. All right. Well, Art, thank you so much for your call. If you want to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. I wanted to go back to Mark Pazniokas of ctmirror.org. Um, you know, you have been reporting that um, the top of the ticket may help or hurt these down-ballot races. There's been great uncertainty. And I think, as as Christine just mentioned, you know, that Denise Merrill today is now thinking, well, maybe it's going to come down, it's going to generate more interest than ultimately it turned off. But yes, talking to candidates who are going door to door, there's a, there was a lot of concern. Um, they had people who were really turned off by by the rhetoric, um, some of it on both sides, but obviously there was a, an emphasis on, on some of the more outlandish things that Donald Trump had, had said during the closing weeks of this campaign. Um, the other factor is... W- if people do turn out, what are they going to do when they get there? Are they going to only vote, you know, for or against uh, Trump and Clinton, or will they stay? Will they look at the rest of the ballot? And that's another part of the concern for these general assembly candidates. I was talking to a candidate in Bristol the other day, who said it it's taking more time at the door this year, but. She found that even with a lot of the self-identified Trump voters, they were open to voting for her. This is a, a Democrat named Laura Bartok. She, she said she was doing OK with the Trump voters because they, they were not um, turned out against the Democratic Party uh, as a whole, but it was a very specific uh, motivation to go and vote against the system, as it were. We've been hearing anecdotally that in the southeast corner of Connecticut, um, there are a lot of Trump supporters. How will that help the 18th district race uh, between Heather Summers and Tim Bowles? Uh, Heather Summers has said it's been a mixed bag. I mean, she gets uh, she gets whipsawed at the doors, people asking her what she's going to do. And, you know, and as um, a Republican woman, I think it's been um, particularly interesting for her, particularly as a, the mother of a 25 year old daughter. She she took to heart. Trump's comments uh, in that Access Hollywood tape, but also some things that came out about the same time about some things he uh, Trump had said on Howard Stern. So she actually came out and urged that weekend, urged Trump to step down. Um, you know, she said she wasn't sure it was going to hurt or help it. You know, it could be a wash. But but yes, Eastern Connecticut um, tends to be a little funky. You know, Ross Perot did real well out there. And so there is that strain of of people who will uh, buck the tide, whatever the tide is at the moment. There's also concern out in May Flexer's district uh, up up in the northeast corner that that will, if Trump draws more people out, uh, will that make her race tight? She had a tight race two years ago against John French, um, and she's in a rematch with Mr. French again this year. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. We're taking a look at the Connecticut General Assembly uh, races with Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief at ctmirror.org, also Christine Stewart, editor of CT News Junkie. Tell us how the experience has been when you've gone to your local polling station, 860-275-7266. Paul's calling from Glastonbury. Paul, you're on the show. Hey, how are you doing, Lucy? I'm doing well. Uh, um, I'm in the precinct uh, with uh, Tweedy and... Uh, that was recently just mentioned, fairly high turnout for uh, around the 9 o'clock uh, standpoint. 
Um, I think one thing that's been interesting is the use of how uh, each candidate used their cam- campaign dollars, uh, specifically with the, the mailers. Uh, both of them sent a mailer that hit at my house uh, yesterday, um, both making their last plea, and they're both at the precinct um, uh, trying to get the votes um, on their side as well. Um, so, no, it's just very, very interesting turnout at the precinct in Glastonbury. All right, Paul, thank you for uh, – go ahead, Mark. And, th- and that's a hot uh, Senate race as well. Um, Steve Cassano is one of the Democrats targeted by by Republicans and by at least one uh, super PAC, and that district overlaps with the district where that gentleman uh, was talking about. Is Paul still on the phone? I kind of want to know if the voter – the mailers were negative or not. Paul, can you did you hear that question? No, no, go ahead. Can you say it again, Christine? Uh, were the mailers negative mailers? Yeah, the, uh, they were both uh, ne- uh, negative and positive, but the ones that hit yesterday was a positive one from Tweedy and a negative one uh, sent by Domenico. Oh, interesting. That is interesting. I actually want, I'm curious if people even pay attention to mailers anymore. Well, I, I, <laughs> the only reason I pay attention is because uh, I actually work in the field. <laughs> 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 well, Paul, thank you for uh, for your call. Uh, Mary Ann's been holding from Salisbury. Mary Ann, you're on the show. Oh, hi, Lucy. I uh, voted in Salisbury about eight thirty, quarter of nine. Are you there? I'm there, and and how okay. I'm here. So here's what I saw because I'm pretty consistent. Way more people than I'm used to. It was very brisk, very disciplined. You know, the people running it knew what they were doing. I did hear the moderator called once, but. The overall feeling was highly energized, topped off with anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) And how do you feel now, Marianne, that you voted? You've gotten out of the way. I'm so happy for our system. I I mean, I am a Democrat in a Republican town, and that's great, but I voted. (laughs) All right, Marianne, thank you for your call. You know, we are getting a lot of tweets from listeners. A lot of people saying that, you know, um, if you're down in the New Haven area, there there has been long lines. Other people down in Hamden, also um, in Manchester, um, not much of a line. So it's interesting to see um, just the variation there. But um, I'm curious, both Mark and Christine, you know, every time we have an election, we kind of hold our breath to see what's going to happen in Bridgeport, what's going to happen in New Haven, what's going to happen in Hartford. But right now, um, no real concerns other than long lines in New Haven? The challenge this year is going to be Election Day registration. This is the first presidential election uh, where that is available. And if if you're not registered and you want to vote for president, every town has one. You do, it's not going to your local poll necessarily. In New Haven, for example, it's at City Hall. And that's the concern in City Hall that um, Paul Bass uh, and the New Haven Independent had a story last week about the uh, registrars there being unprepared, the the people in the clerk's office not being quite ready for this. So there was a lot of concern there. And we had long lines for Election Day registration in New Haven in the race for governor two years ago. We had long lines in, in Hartford. So, yeah, there's always something. Malloy said that this morning after he voted that, you know, there was a hiccup at his polling place two years ago. And in his own election, he, sh- you know, he showed up to vote and the voting list were not prepared. Um, so, yeah, there's always something in Bridgeport. There was uh, one polling place uh, in, in 2010 in the race for governor where the moderator or deputy moderator was pregnant. And that was the year they were actually hand counting ballots because they had to print extra ballots because they didn't order enough. And they actually sealed uh, hundreds of ballots in a bag and counted them two days later, uh, which added, you know, was a nice bit of drama for the end of that election. <laughs> and, Christine, you said that you, again, spoke with Secretary of the State Denise Merrill this morning. Did she bring up the New Haven issue with the uh, same-day elect- registration? 
much. No, so she feels like she's prepared. Uh, we posted a story this morning. We already had a reporter down there, and, uh, you know, the, there were about 15 to 20 people in line when the doors opened at 6, 6 a.m., and uh, even though it's not uh, she's not responsible for doing this. Uh, New Haven Mayor Tony Harp has uh, allocated some additional staff um, to the Registrar of Voters Office today to to help out. Um, and so people should also know that all these elections are run are run locally and and paid for with with local money for for the most part. Um, so the number of people who are hired at the polls comes from uh, your budget from your town. I want to take another call. I think it's Kapil calling from East Hartford. Uh, Kapil, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing your name incorrectly. What's uh, what's your comment or question? No, you're pronouncing my name correctly. I just I wanted to share my experience in East Hartford. Um, really, were no lines at eight o'clock. Flow was really smooth. Uh, there were a lot of volunteers there, which is which seemed like it brought a lot of people out. Um, in terms of down the ballot election, I, I have to admit. Uh, without saying who I voted for, I had an emotional reaction as I was walking in, and, and I ended up going with a party line. That's interesting. You said you had an emotional reaction? Yeah, you know, it's just, with all the rhetoric that's been going on, I, uh, it, it, it just, I usually vote, I, I usually split my vote, even if I don't know the other candidates all enough, because I do like to have a balance in, in the House of the Senate. I figured if you split your vote, you're going to get some sort of a balance and hopefully they'll work it out. They're so not working out at the national level, but hopefully at the local level, as your earlier guest said, things work a little bit better. But but I just couldn't even get myself to do that. So I, I think there's been so much negativity about it for which me to just go down a party line. All right, Kapil, thank you so much for your call. Uh, Joanne's calling from New Milford. Joanne, you're on Where We Live. Hi. Uh, I'm calling from New Milford. Uh, my husband and I were at the polls before 6 o'clock this morning, and there were a good number of people there already. And by the time we left, uh, say about 6.10, 6.15 or so, the parking lot was full of cars. So I, it looks like it's going to be a really good turnout in New Milford. You said the parking lot was full. Is this something that you've seen in past years, If you've come, if you've gotten up pretty early to vote? Uh, well, I've never seen it full at 6 o'clock in the morning. No, never. <laughs> so it's really, you know, I think it's exciting. And New Milford is one of the places that's going to be important to control the state Senate. Uh, it's home to David Lawson, the Democrat who is running for an open seat out there against Republican Craig Miner. That is a seat that is held by a Republican now, Clark Chapin, who did not seek re-election. So I'm sure Mr. Lawson is happy to hear that there's a big turnout in his town in New Milford. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about the General Assembly races with Christine Stewart from CT News Junkie and Mark Pazniokas from ctmirror.org. Uh, Christine, before we let you go, um, remind our listeners, I know in past elections we have federal observers um, that check out certain polling sites. They're doing that again this year, particularly looking at um, one mechanism. Is that right? Yeah, they are looking at the new IVS system for uh, disabled voters. So they're going to be in seven um, seven towns in, in Connecticut um, monitoring how things are going with this new voting technology, which takes place um, uh, by a tablet, which then prints out an actual paper ballot. Um, so uh, the, the paper ballot will look similar to um, the uh, paper ballots for uh, able-bodied voters. 
And Mark Pasniokas, um, again, can you remind us, again, we were talking about whether people are paying attention to down-ballot races, but a lot of work that needs to be done uh, come session starts in January. Absolutely. It's going to be another difficult budget year. Um, taxes will be on the table. Spending cuts will be on the table. Uh, it And it's going to be... This this is Connecticut is a place where the Republicans have not been able to compete for the federal races, and we're certainly seeing that this year. Nobody has really come up with any decent campaign funds, but it's a very different story in Hartford. The Republicans do compete in the General Assembly, and uh, they are expected to be competitive uh, in 2018 for governor, and, and that's the bad news, folks. If you're tired about this, the race, the 2018 race for governor pretty much starts tomorrow. <laughs> and speaking of the governor, depending on who wins, there's been a lot of speculation. If Hillary Clinton becomes the next president, Governor Malloy is leaving Connecticut to work in her administration. What have you been hearing? A couple problems with that. <laughs> One, there is a, a pending federal investigation looking at Democratic Party fundraising, and, and that would be a bit of a cloud on anything that would require confirmation. The other challenge is Hillary Clinton has um, probably the thickest Rolodex in the history of American politics. And I'm not sure where the governor will uh, rank in that. Um, you know, I think he would be open to a significant cabinet post. Beyond that, I, I'm not sure he would be interested in, in bailing for anything less. But uh, certainly th- there are Republicans and some Democrats who have their own ambitions who uh, would love to see that get mixed up. But I'm not sure that's going to be in the cards. And Christine Stewart, we heard Mark saying earlier that one of the things that residents are, are fed up about and who are, that are thinking about when they go to the polls to vote in these uh, assembly races is uh, the tax climate here. What have you been hearing from voters? Yeah, I think that they're, they are frustrated with, with what's going on, um, you know, specifically in, in Hartford and how it's impacted their, their pocketbooks. And, you know, I, I think that Connecticut voters are independent voters, and I don't necessarily believe that who they vote for at the top of the ticket um, will influence their decision uh, lower on on the ballot. There were, there were no coattails four years ago um, with Barack Obama. Had a, with his big victory here, Republicans didn't lose a single seat. Uh, we want to take one quick call before we head to break. Jason, you're calling from New Haven. How's it going down there? So I voted at about uh, 7 o'clock this morning here in one of the more densely populated uh, neighborhoods in New Haven. There was at least 150 people in line in front of me, but I was in and out of there within 20 to 25 minutes. So it wasn't that bad considering the volume of people that they had this morning. Were you expecting it to be worse? Um. I wasn't sure what to expect. It was my first time to vote in the city of New Haven. So, uh, you know, I, I've heard that they had issues uh, in the midterm election two years ago. So wasn't sure what to expect with this one. But um, I was surprised when I saw so many people, but it moved along quickly. So it, it wasn't a bad thing. Oh, so far, so good. Thank you, Jason, yeah. for your call. And I want to thank Mark Pasniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief with ctmirror.org. Also, Christine Stewart, editor of ctnewsjunkie.com. Before we go, where will you be watching the results tonight? I will be at uh, Dick Blumenthal's uh, victory party at the Hartford Hills. <laughs> That's right. He's running for re-election in the U.S. Senate. Yes. <laughs> he is. I'll be actually uh, at the studios of Channel 30. We have a little partnership going with them this year. Um, so I'll be writing the general story, so assembly story from there. And I'll just remind our listeners, you can also check out at where we, at WNPR on Facebook. We're going to be Facebook living all day long from our newsroom, our shows, election parties. Uh, check us out there on 
Facebook. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to hear how one Canadian town has been benefiting from our country's contentious presidential race. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, we'll recap the results of Election Day with political analysts, reporters, and you. Don't forget to join the conversation Thursday on Where We Live. Right now, we're checking in with a Canadian from a lovely island in Nova Scotia. Months ago, radio DJ Rob Calabrese came up with a joke. Invite Americans to move to his community of Cape Breton if Donald Trump becomes president. The joke quickly turned into something Cape Bretons are calling the Trump bump. To tell us more, Rob Calabrese joins us by phone. Rob Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. I understand you have a website that you created, Cape Breton if Donald Trump wins. How did this all begin? Well, um, you're having an election right now. I'm sure you've <laughs> heard about it and your, your audience knows all about it. But uh, every time there's an election in the United States, uh, you hear, we even hear the threats up here of so-and-so, whoever they don't like wins, I'm going to move to Canada. So... <laughs> I basically wanted to throw it out there that Canada is more than Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal. And if you are going to come, there's a really awesome spot right here that you should consider. And I I read the website wrong. It's cbiftrumpwins.com. So you created this website. I said it was a joke, but then it really took off. It was kind of a joke. I mean... We have a severe population problem. That's why I ba- well, that's why it was built. It's not just to you know get people here because it's fun to do. We're uh, we lose about one thousand people every year, which is not sustainable. So it, that's the real reason. It was kind. Of, I mean, it's not in a in a gravely serious fashion. It's in a more of a, a playful way. But the problem is real. That I hoped to get attention for Cape Breton because of that. Now, you're talking to us here in Connecticut. We know a little bit about population migration, losing people to other parts of of the country. So why are people leaving Cape Breton? Uh, It's almost 100 percent economic reasons. uh, We were a coal and steel island for 100 years. And in the 90s, that all kind of uh, went away over uh, a very short span, and that left a lot of people unemployed, so they had to leave. And I know when we go to the website, um, you don't want to be too much of a downer by telling us about the economy, but there are things, there's pluses to um, selling uh, Cape Breton uh, to the American people to come and visit, to possibly buy property there. Um, What are some of the advantages of moving? Well, yeah, you're right. There are lots of advantages, but it's not for everybody. I mean, if you want to go to a Broadway show every night and uh, have brunch with Paris Hilton, you're not going to be able to do that. We're remote and we're rural, but for some people, that's a really good selling point. We're always ranking high on uh, beautiful islands lists that you see on the Internet. We have Uh, diverse cultures with uh, very vibrant First Nations communities who are leaders on the island. We have uh, French-speaking communities. We have uh, even people who speak Gaelic. So you created this website. Um, I read that the government wasn't really on board with it, but then the tourism office thought this is not not a half-bad idea. Yeah, our uh, tourism body was 
right there from day one because when I made it, I put a little link to them at the bottom and uh, without their permission. And when uh, their CEO, Mary Toll, called a few days in, uh, she was just all on board and just offered whatever assistance she could. She saw the opportunity and seized it. And yeah, our uh, our tourism operator certainly had a good summer. And so to give us an idea of how many people have either um, come to visit or have actually inquired realistically that maybe will I, I will move out there. Uh, well, as far as visitors, our tourism numbers were up 14% for the summer. But um, as far as people who are inquiring, we had about 6,000 people asking questions, I would say, in earnest about what it means to start a new life here, whether it's uh, immigration or employment opportunities or just uh, cultural questions, uh, questions about, oh, can I bring my pet? What's the gun laws? What's it like to be LGBT? It's just uh, so many different questions. I understand you've gotten at least some hate mail from uh, supporters of Donald Trump. Uh, here's a clip from uh, CNN. Why would anyone want to move to Canada, especially some isolated, known-for-nothing place like Cape Breton? So how did you respond to that? Well, I don't, I re- I don't really respond to them. I'm, I was actually quite surprised at how little uh, hate mail there was, because, I mean, this is a very partisan uh, thing I've gotten myself involved in, but the vast majority of people who have reached out were just asking questions or they were sending notes of encouragement and those kinds of things were were very very few and far between did you hear from anyone who wanted to move um if hillary clinton were to win absolutely (laughs) absolutely tons and of course we welcome all no matter what uh republican democrat libertarian green trump supporter it uh we're not in a position really to be picky, but a lot of people are, I guess, it's just a, it's kind of, if you were to look at all the contacts, it's just a combination of anger and fear, which for a long time this election for me and reading these notes is just, uh, I find it concerning and uh, I'm nervous today, no matter who wins. I just hope that the United States has a very uneventful and safe election day, and at the end there's a peaceful transition of power, and I just can't imagine the monumental task that whoever wins today has ahead of them at uniting the country. And uh, I just wish you the best of luck. Well, thank you for that. I think we're all uh, we're all on board with that sentiment. Um, you know, you mentioned how this U.S. election has made you feel. What are um, other Canadians saying? Uh, well, see, Canadians are looking at this, and we're enjoying, uh, I don't know, a time in the sun, I guess, right now. We just had our longest election ever, which was 78 days. Um, Justin Trudeau is an international adorable sensation, and we're kind of, I say we, but I say Canadians in general are kind of chuckling and looking at the American election. But I don't think we realize 
how affected this country is. And I find a corner of the globe where the United States election is not going to impact them. There, we had a prime minister in the 70s and 80s who said, as actually Justin Trudeau's father, who said, living next to the United States is like sleeping with an elephant, where no matter how well-intentioned the beast, every grunt and twist is going to be felt all night. And if I'm just nervous about the elephant having a nightmare <laughs> and the impact that that will, that will make here. Well, I want to thank you, Rob Calabrese. He's a radio DJ at 1019 The Giant in Sydney, uh, in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Canada. It was his idea to invite Americans to move to the island if Donald Trump wins. Since, since launching the website, it's received more than 2 million visits and nearly 6,000 contacts, according to the CBC. Rob, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks for your interest. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyone Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Again, you can check out Facebook Live at WNPR to check in on what's been going on in the newsroom, around Connecticut, at polling stations later on tonight uh, during election night parties. And we want to continue to hear from you. Check out our Facebook and Twitter handles at Where We Live. Let us know how the voting's going. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.